it's a great honor and privilege and pleasure uh, to introduce to you Professor Wendy Doniger. Uh, Professor Doniger is a scholar and teacher of very many facets and many dimensions. Uh, so many, it's very difficult to sort them out and uh, account for them. Uh, you can say that she's the uh, foremost scholar in the United States, leave of Hinduism, and the foremost scholar in America of comparative religions. Uh, but that's too abstract and doesn't do justice to the incredible complexity and dimensions of her thought and, and her writings. Uh, one way to perhaps sort out some of the different dimensions is to talk a little bit about the narrative of her academic life. Uh, she received her undergraduate degree from Radcliffe College and then went on to Harvard to get a PhD. Then she went to Oxford University and got another PhD there. So she has two PhDs. She taught in England, and then she taught for a while at UC Berkeley, and then for the past 27 years has taught at the University of Chicago. At the University of Chicago, she wears many different hats and has a number of different appointments. She's a distinguished professor of the history of religions at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Uh, but she's also the Mircea Eliade Distinguished Service Professor in History of Religions at the University of Chicago itself. Uh, and she's in the uh, uh, program for South Asian Studies uh, and many other kind of dimensions of, of education at the University of Chicago. And then uh, her books. Uh, it's hard to keep track of them for me, but she's written at least 20, and maybe it's 25, somewhere in there, uh, and about 240 articles. And the books, there are two different kinds. Uh, there's one strand of her literary output, uh, which basically involves uh, uh, discussions of, analyses of, or translations of various classics of uh, the Hindu tradition. And then there's a whole other strand which deals with broader theoretical issues about the nature of myth, the nature ultimately of, of religious consciousness. Tonight her talk is basically going to, I suppose, rise out of the other strand, which is informed by the first one, of course. Her talk is about, you can't get there from here, the logical paradox of creation myths. And besides studying the aspects of myths, religious myths, that are common in some ways to religions around the world. She also studies the ways in which myths do their, their, their magic. Uh, what myths do, of course, is to try to pull together many different dimensions of meaning. Dimensions that speak to our unconscious, dimensions that speak to our emotions, dimensions that speak to our intellect. And fuse them together in, in, in some powerful narrative way that makes us see uh, the many complex dimensions of what it means to be human and what it means to be religiously human. So in a certain way, I think Professor Doniger kind of embodies the mythical life and consciousness in her own body, her own, own experience, her own biography. She pulls together many, many dimensions of what it means to be religious, what it means to be human, how to think, how to appeal both to the emotions and to the, and to, and to the intellect, uh, and, and presents them in uh, prose that, that's vivid and engaging and I'm sure you'll hear all these things in her lecture tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming tonight, and thank you very much to the custodians of the Burke Lecture Series. It's a great honor to follow in the footsteps of so many wonderful lecturers in that series, some from Chicago, my colleague Martin Marty, and from all over. And um, I had a wonderful welcome, and I had a great day at the San Diego Zoo, and the sun was shining, and I watched the seals on the beach, and uh, it's just been great. And I thank you all very much for giving me the chance to do this. And I look forward also to the questions and uh, discussion period after this. It's always a work in progress. And Let's go. Creation myths tackle the problem of the ultimate origin of it all, the beginning of life out of non-life, at three different basic levels, creation of the universe, of the human race, or of the individual human being, the embryo. What sort of origins do we regard as our origins? Mirce Eliade demonstrated how events said to take place in illo tempore, in that time, the time of origins, are constantly evoked to explain how things are, or more often ought to be today. But scholars, Eliada most notoriously included, often mimic believers in this regard. The search for origins in religious texts has also been a scholar's search for the origins of religious texts. The idea, seldom expressed but generally operative, is that the earliest texts will somehow be closest to the origins of the world and therefore more likely to have the truth about it, just as texts closer to the time of Jesus or the Buddha are thought to be more likely to have the truth about Jesus or the Buddha. They were there. The scholarly equivalent of the religious quest for origins is the quest for the Ur text, a 19th century obsession that still lingers in many backwaters of the academy, the earliest text. A somewhat more sophisticated but still unfalsifiable corollary to this belief is the assumption that any idea that is shared by a number of cultures has a kind of truth in it. In fact, all that it proves, and this is still something worth knowing, the basis of the discipline of comparative religion, is that human beings in several cultures have had some roughly similar ideas about, say, the origins of the world. And even then, we must quickly add that they have also had some very different ideas also. Eliada saw patterns that extended through many religions on both the cosmic and the social level, but he also noted the ways in which these patterns vary according to the specific historical and social con conditions of the cultures that create them, what we call context. Though myths have a life of their own, they are embedded in human culture. And as science changes, myth changes. Astronomy, botany, geography, embryology, methods of measurement, each has its effects upon the formulation of mythological concepts of creation. I think I want this down a little bit. The problem that most creation mythologies, including, I think, scientific theories of creation, must face is the basic problem of creation ex nihilo, getting from the original moment of nothing to the present moment of something. 
It's not a problem that every culture takes on, that the Mesopotamians are not apparently bothered by this problem at all, but simply assume that everything was always already there, is something that I learned quite recently. This may well be, or is it perhaps that they did not care to discuss the problem and preferred to begin at a moment in time when everything was already there? Most people, after all, even mythographers, are more interested in what happened to our first ancestors than in more philosophical paradoxes. And many myths are designed not to answer people's questions, but to make them start asking those questions in the first place. Yet other myths inspire questions, but also constrain the answers by leading people to frame them in theological terms. The question of creation ex nihilo may also be too radical for the elites who produced most of our sources. Yet many mythologies do tackle this paradox, and when they do, the resulting mental gymnastics always reminds me of the old joke about the native city dweller trying to give complicated street directions to an out-of-towner and concluding, you can't get there from here. No mythology can get here, the present, from there, illud tempus, that time. And most of them fudge this fact by positing the unexplained sudden appearance of an original something, God or a kind of chaotic primeval matter, and moving quickly off this highly debatable point into a labyrinth of baroque elaboration, a proliferation of detail. From this original something came water, and then an egg, and then a bird, and then 14 kinds of snakes, and 29 tribes of human beings, and so forth and so on. This is a false trail that lures the listener or reader away from the opening point, the inevitable weak point, the question that cannot be answered. The moment when you get from nothing to something is always fudged over, like the transition from one visual plane to another in the drawings of M. C. Escher. If you look carefully, there's a spot where it doesn't work properly because you can't get there from here. There's always a point that seems either to be accidentally concealed by some random object or to be an apparent mistake in the drawing, but this is the spot where the painting switches from one register to another, a moment that we cannot be allowed to look at. For the ultimate moment of transition from pre-creation to post-creation is a moment that no one can actually know and that presents a logical dilemma that no argument can resolve. Instead, most texts devise indirect strategies to give the false impression that the basic question has been answered when it has not. They try to explain it by adopting various attitudes, ranging from dogmatic certainty to humble confessions of ignorance, and various techniques of obfuscation, all designed to cover up the unavoidable but inadmissible fact of the origin of life, the fact that you can't get there from here. I want to start tonight by really concentrating on the texts I know best, which are the texts from ancient India. These texts begin with the Rig Veda, a canonical collection of 1,028 hymns composed in the hills of the Punjab about 1,000 BCE by the inspired priests of a migratory people who rode their horses and grazed their cattle down into the Ganges Valley by about 900 BCE. 
There they composed the Upanishads, which commented on the Vedic hymns and explained the rules for the sacrifice of goats, sheep, cows, and horses. There's an unbroken line of intertextuality and commentary right through the great epics and the medieval uh, text of mythology. And each layer of text knows the ones that have gone before and takes the riddle of creation into new territory. So I want to start with the Veda and go up to the medieval period. Let me begin then in the Vedic mythology which is the oldest Indian text and hence presumably closest to the moment of creation. The first thing to note is that there is no one single theory of creation in this text, nor in Hinduism as a whole. There are a number of different, more or less compatible theories, which no one ever tried to fit systematically into a canonical doctrine. Indeed, one of the Vedic hymns explicitly lays out an open-ended attitude to the first things. This short, linguistically straightforward hymn, known from its first words as the There Was Not Hymn, the Nasadiya, has provoked hundreds of complex commentaries among Indian theologians and Western scholars, for it raises unanswerable questions, piling up paradoxes. Let me read it to you, or most of it to you. There was neither non-existence nor existence then. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky that is beyond. What stirred? Where? Was there water, bottomlessly deep? There was neither death nor immortality then. There was no distinguishing sign of night nor of day. That one breathed, windless, by its own impulse. Other than that, there was nothing beyond. Darkness was hidden by darkness in the beginning. With no distinguishing sign, all this was water. Desire became upon that one in the beginning. That was the first seed of mind. Poets seeking in their heart with wisdom found the bond of existence in non-existence. Their cord was extended across. Was there below? Was there above? There were seed placers. There were powers. Who really knows? Who will here proclaim it? Whence was it produced? Whence is this creation? The gods came afterwards with the creation of this universe. Who then knows whence it has arisen? Perhaps it formed itself? Or perhaps it did not. The one who looks down on it in the highest heaven, only he knows. Or perhaps he does not know. (laughs) And that's how the hymn ends. (laughs) There is a charming humility in this hymn, an open-mindedness that reminds me of Unitarianism or or the ethical culture covens of my secular youth. The last line, or perhaps he does not know, seems almost to mock the rhetoric of more typical hymns in the very text in which it occurs, the Rig Veda, lines like the one that comes right before it, the one who looks down on it in the highest heaven only he knows. The comforting image of the measuring cord, which I'm going to talk about again, is undercut by two verses that frame it, for the hymn begins most confusingly with the statement, there was neither existence nor non-existence then. 
easy enough to say, I challenge you actually to imagine what that state was like. There was neither existence nor non-existence. Try thinking about it. Go crazy. (laughs) And the hymn ends most unsatisfactorily with the suggestion, perhaps he does not know. Most important, the hymn asks, who really knows? A question about the very nature, perhaps the very existence of God. This admission of ignorance becomes even more powerful in the via negativa of the Upanishads, philosophical commentaries on the Veda from perhaps 600 BCE, which, when asked to describe the absolute, which that text calls Brahman, can only reply, it's not like this, it's not like that. Neti, neti, not thus, not thus. When the image of measuring recurs in the Rig Veda in another cosmogonic hymn, again it is undercut by unanswered cosmic questions. Who really knows? Each stanza in this second hymn ends with the questioning refrain, Who is the God whom we should worship with the oblation? He by whom the awesome sky and the earth were made firm, by whom the dome of the sky was propped up and the sun who measured out the middle realm of space, who is the God whom we should worship with the oblation, and so on and so forth. Later Hindu tradition was troubled by this open-ended refrain and invented a God whose name was the interrogative pronoun ka, which is cognate with the Latin quis, the French key, who. One text explained it. The creator asked the sky god, who am I? To which the sky god replied, just who you just said. That is, I am who. And that is how the creator got the name of who. So to one Vedic ceremony, when the ritual subject goes to heaven and comes back again, says that he must say on his return, I am just who I am. It's interesting to compare this with the more confident Jewish and Christian concept of the great I am. Read back into the Vedic hymn as it was in the Vedic commentaries, this God named Who resulted in an affirmative statement. Indeed, Who is the God whom we should honor with the oblation? Somewhat reminiscent of the famous Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first? What? No, he's on second. I don't know, he's on third. To measure is to make. The verb ma in Sanskrit means both. It means to make, not in the sense of creating ex nihilo, or even of fashioning a pot out of clay, but of making something by arbitrarily delineating it from what it is not. And I always think of the example of making West Virginia out of Virginia, right? You have this land, you don't create a new place, you know, mountains and trees and everything. You just say, okay, this is no longer Virginia, now it's West Virginia. And it changes because they may have different laws and so forth. And that's the way making the universe is thought of in some other Vedic hymns. Namely, the gods said, this is the earth, this is the sky, and from there on it's heaven, and therefore he made those three worlds. The idea of um, no making the world in this sense is a kind of Austinian speech act that alters reality. 
The idea of cosmic measurement was more fully developed in yet another Vedic hymn, this time a theistic hymn, demonstrating that the basic principle of creations prevail whether or not the author of the text believes that there is a God. This is a short hymn, the only hymn addressed to the god Vishnu alone, for Vishnu only becomes prominent, let alone monotheistic, as it were, in later Hinduism. This short hymn in the Veda goes like this. Let me now sing the heroic deeds of Vishnu, who has measured apart the realms of earth, who propped up the upper dwelling place, striding far as he stepped forth three times. They praise for his heroic deeds Vishnu, who alone with but three steps measured apart this long, far-reaching dwelling place. Alone he supports threefold the earth and the sky and all creatures. This brief text, then, becomes the basis of a later myth about an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu as a dwarf who takes three steps to win the universe back from a demon who has stolen it away. With one step he covers the earth. He goes to this demon and he says, I'm just a little dwarf, and would you give me something? And the demon says, go away, what do you want? He says, just just as much space as I can step in three, three steps. And he thinks, he's just a little guy. How far can he step? He says, sure, sure, you're going to have three steps. And then he expands into the cosmic form of Vishnu. And with the first step, he covers the earth. The second, the sky. And the third, the heavens. So this is another version of the creation. This time, the winning back. But the propping apart of heaven and earth, measuring out and establishing the three worlds for all creatures to dwell in, is a central Vedic cosmogonic act, usually attributed not to the god Vishnu, but to more important Vedic gods like Indra or Varuna. Varuna is like Uranus, he's the sky god. This time-sharing property of the Vedic gods turns out to be another way to keep the existence and or the number of the authors of creation an open question in Vedic religion. Through what the great 19th century scholar Max, Max Müller called Cathanotheism or Henotheism, the worship of one god as a, at a time as the only god. This is a theological parallel to serial monogamy. <laughs> Regarding, you, Vishnu, are the only god I've ever worshipped. You are the only one. You, Varana, are the only god I've ever worshipped. You are the only one. You, Susan, are the only woman I've ever loved. You are the only one. You, Helen, are the only woman I've ever loved. You are the only one. This process made possible a kind of non-hierarchical pantheon. The attitude to each god was here hierarchical, you are the best, but the various competing monisms canceled one another out so that the total picture one was one of equality. Each of several was the best. If several gods existed then in the life of a single worshiper, how many gods were there? The gods were often called the 33, rather like the Forbes 500 companies. But one of the earliest Upanishads mocked this number with a dialogue in which, in response to a pupil's repeated question, but how many gods are there really? The increasingly impatient teacher replies first, 303 and 3003, then 
33, then 6, then 3, then 2, then 1 and a half, and finally 1. The numbers in creation myths are part of the technique of obfuscation, lending an air of mathematical precision to what is in fact pure speculation. This technique is what the legal profession calls a tap dance, a play that a lawyer makes to the gallery or to the jury in an attempt to distract attention away from the lack of actual legal evidence in his client's favor. This metaphor was brought to life, as myths often are, when Richard Gere, playing such a lawyer in the musical film Chicago, actually does a tap dance at the crucial moment in the trial. So let's turn from the origins of the cosmos to the origins of the human race. The same principles that permeate the mythology of cosmogony operate on the next level of creation, anthropogony, or the creation of the humans. The most explicit Vedic discussion of the origins of the human race is the so-called hymn of man, the Purusha Sukta, which is also the most explicitly hierarchical hymn in the whole of the Rig Veda. For when the texts get down to the nitty-gritty of the creation of the human race, it is the affirmative rather than the questioning tone that dominates, and the concept of hierarchy that has the last word. Like many myths of the origin of the human race that instill ideals of social hierarchy that they construct as natural, this famous hymn seems to have abandoned all sense of skepticism in order to present a clear-cut social theory in the guise of a myth of creation. I'll read you, it's, it's a little long, I'll just read you parts of it. The man has a thousand heads, a thousand eyes, a thousand feet. He pervaded the earth on all sides. It is the man who is all this, whatever has been and whatever is to be. All creatures are a quarter of him. Three quarters are what is immortal in heaven. With three quarters the man rose upwards, and one quarter of him still remains here. When they divided the man into how many parts did they apportion him? His mouth became the Brahmin, his arms were made into the warrior, his thighs the people, and from his feet the servants were born. The moon was born from his mind. From his eye, the sun was born. From his navel, the middle realm of space arose. From his head, the sky evolved. In this hymn, the gods create the world by dismembering a cosmic giant, the man, who is the victim in a Vedic sacrifice that creates the whole universe, including the four classes of ancient Indian society. The sacrifice designates both the ritual and the victim killed in the ritual. Moreover, the man is both the victim that the gods sacrificed and the divinity to whom the sacrifice was dedicated. That is, he is both the subject and the object of the sacrifice. This Vedic bootstraps pattern, or chicken and egg paradox, is a kind of tautology that recurs in other cosmogonies. From one god, from, from Aditi, a female god, Daksha is born, and from Daksha, Aditi is born. The creator in many of these texts has the tautological name of self-existing, often translated as self-created. 
he creates himself. This sort of tautology is a major obfuscational stratagem in the game of cosmogony. You do explain where something comes from, it comes from something else. And indeed you explain where that comes from too, it comes from the first thing. Two for the price of one. Moving right along. This circular creation appears in later myths as well, such as the oft-retold story of the origins of the gods Vishnu and Brahma, a short myth, short variant. When the three worlds were in darkness, Vishnu slept in the middle of the cosmic ocean. A lotus grew out of his navel. Brahma came to him and said, tell me, who are you? Vishnu replied, I am Vishnu, creator of the universe. All the worlds and you yourself are inside me. And who are you? Brahma replied, I am the creator and everything is inside me. Vishnu then entered Brahma's body and saw all three worlds in his belly. Astonished, he came out of Brahma's mouth and said, now you must enter my belly in the same way and see the worlds. And so Brahma entered Vishnu's belly and saw all the worlds. Then, since Vishnu had shut all the openings, Brahma came out of Vishnu's navel and rested on the lotus. It's best if you visualize, all right? There's Vishnu lying down, lotus, and Brahma's inside the lotus that comes out of Vishnu's navel. Okay, keep that in your image, in your mind. You'll see there's a problem here. Houston, we have a problem here, okay. So in this myth, each god sees all worlds, including, as Vishnu points out, but Brahma does not, both himself and the other god inside the belly of the other god. Each claims to be the creator of the universe, and yet each contains the other creator. This circularity is mirrored by mutual birth symbolism. Brahma, born from Vishnu, as a baby would be born from a mother, is nevertheless connected to Vishnu by the lotus stalk that comes out of Vishnu's navel, functioning as an umbilical cord, which would make Vishnu the baby, connected to the lotus, a symbol of the womb in India, by his own navel as a baby, would be connected to the mother. The myth of Vishnu and Brahma is also set at the liminal moment when the universe has been destroyed and reduced to a cosmic ocean and is about to undergo a new creation which in turn will be followed by a dissolution, then a creation, and so on ad infinitum, another series of mutual creations. Or as T.S. Eliot, who knew and cited a great deal of Hindu mythology, put it in Burnt Norton, or say that the ending precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end. The hymn of man, the Vedic hymn, takes the three Indo-European social classes, according to the great paradigm of Georges de Maisil, the king priest at the top, then warriors and policemen, and then the rest of the people who produce the food for the first two classes, and it adds at the bottom a fourth class, servants, the outside class within society that defines the other classes. The hierarchical distinction is quite clear. Three parts rose above 
and one remained below. And indeed, this distinction makes it possible to view the final combination, three and one, not as a quartet, but as a dualism. All of us in the first three classes, who are given various names such as the twice-born or the Aryans, versus all of them in the fourth class, the non-us, the others, the servant class. Moreover, the king who shares the first position with the Brahmin in the earlier Indo-European world slips down in the Rig Veda to share the second position with the warrior, a move that was much contested throughout later literature. So even in this earliest layer, in a hymn supposedly postulating a social charter that was created at the very dawn of time and is to remain in place forever after, even here we can see movement, change, slippage, progress or decay, depending on your point of view. This is another sort of obfuscation that is basic to mythology, appearing not to change as it changes. The semblance of an unmoving eternity presented in texts that themselves clearly document constant transformation. Later texts begin to distinguish the gods, the devas, not merely from humans but from anti-gods or demons, asuras, no simple text, no simple task in India. Indeed, in the Indo-European stage, the Asuras were not anti-gods at all, but simply a particular sort of sky gods. The great god in the Avesta, the ancient Persian counterpart to the Rig Veda, is called Ahura Mazda, the great Asura, a benevolent spirit. And in the Rig Veda, several good gods are called Asuras. And just as benevolent Asuras then become malevolent demons in India, so too benevolent Greek daimons, another sort of god, become malevolent demons in Christianity. And the devas of ancient India and Persia, gods, cognate with deus in Latin and theos in Greek, become the devils of Christianity. These linguistic clues to the fungibility of the moral attributes of the powers that be were categorically expunged by later Manichaeanism and Hinduism, which insisted that evil has always been evil and good has always been good. But the arbitrary nature of the later distinction between gods and demons, both sons of the creator, is emphasized by a circular logic that resembles in form the tautology we've already encountered in the Veda. That is, the creator makes the demons evil because they are evil. And he creates them, creates them out of darkness, but then he makes their substance into night, which didn't, uh, didn't exist until he created it out of darkness. The text that first tells this story, one of the Brahmanas co composed a few centuries after the Vedas, in about 800 BCE, replicates the Vedic model of dismemberment in a modified form. The creator creates from his mouth, not the Brahmins, but the gods. The creator was born to live for a thousand years. Just as one might see in the distance the far shore of a river, so he saw the far shore of his own life. From his mouth he created the gods, and they entered the sky. Then with his downward breath he created the demons, and they entered the earth, 
and there was darkness for them for him when he had created them. Then he knew that he had created evil, since darkness appeared to him when he had created them. Then he pierced them with evil, and it was because of this that they were overcome. Therefore it is said, the battle between gods and demons did not happen as it is told in the narratives and histories, for the Creator pierced them with evil, and it was because of this that they were overcome. This text still maintains a piece of ancient Vedic skepticism to the degree that it challenges traditional statements that the gods conquered the demons in fair combat. Instead, it maintains, the Creator corrupted them. Thus, for the first time, the text begins to incorporate into the cosmogony another puzzle of origins that rivals both in importance and in impenetrability the puzzle of the creation of something from nothing, namely the creation of evil from presumably good or at least moral neutrality. The myth of dismemberment is further developed in the Laws of Manu, a text of social law composed in India in the early centuries of the Common Era. The most famous of the law books of Dharma, the textbooks of the social system. Its version of creation begins with one variant of the usual image of undifferentiated chaos. Once upon a time, this universe was made of darkness, without anything that could be discerned, without any distinguishing marks. But then, ex nihilo, a creator god appears and goes to work. First he emitted the waters, that's, then he emitted his semen in them. That semen became a golden egg. He divided the egg into two. Out of the two fragments, he made the sky and the earth and the atmosphere in the middle and the eight directions and were off and running. First thing you know, he emitted time and the divisions of time, the constellations and planets, rivers, ocean, mountains, in rough ground and smooth ground, ascetic heat, speech, and sexual pleasure, desire, and anger. Note the casual interleaving of physical things like mountains and mental constructs like the divisions of time, mediated by quasi-physical things like speech and emotions. There is simply no time to ask, where did the Creator God come from? As the Vedic hymn a thousand years earlier had asked. Instead, we progress to the creation of the human race. The laws of Manu takes up this aspect of creation right after the bit about cracking the egg and before we get into the constellations. Manu speaks of innate activities, that is, karmas, inherent in each creature from its birth. An individual is born to be a king or a servant, or more precisely in terms of the actuality of caste rather than the theory of class, he's born to be a potter or a shoemaker. And this is what the text says. In the beginning he made the individual names and innate activities of all things precisely in accordance with the words of the Veda. And he distinguished right from wrong and he yoked these creatures with happiness and unhappiness and so forth. And whatever innate activity the Lord yoked each creature to at first, that creature by himself engaged in that very activity as he was created again and again. 
Harmful or harmless, gentle or cruel, right or wrong, truthful or lying. The activity he gave each creature in creation kept entering it by itself. Just as the seasons by themselves take on the distinctive signs of the seasons as they change, so embodied beings by themselves take on their innate activities, each his own. So what's happened here? During the millennium that separates the Vedic text from this text, both the authoritative tone and the insistence on social hierarchy grow stronger. The circularity of the innate activities, the circularity of karma, is explicitly set from the time of creation. You must be what you are. You cannot change your qualities. The recreation of individual characteristics is inevitable, explicitly likened to the natural process of the seasons. And to nail down this point, the text reverts to the Veda and quotes the creation of the four classes from the different parts of the cosmic man. Finally, it ends up in a place that we know well from our own scriptures. He divided his own body into two and became a man with one half, a woman with the other half. And from there on, it's downhill all the way. Thus, the creation of the world is the creation of the human race, and the creation of the human race is the creation of the social system. Manu is going on to promote the laws of Manu, the laws of the caste system. The names of the great sages include the names of the authors of several of the great legal texts, as if his first act were to create Deuteronomy or Numbers. Had Durkheim or Max Weber or even Malinowski set out to write a creation myth, they could have done no better. Time in Hinduism is divided into the four ages or yugas that combine to make an eon, four ages in which human beings become increasingly wicked and live shorter and shorter lifespans. The Four Ages sometimes formed a quartet in ancient Greece, too, but where the Greeks characterized the ages by metals, beginning with gold, the Hindus characterized them by throws of the dice. The first age is the winning throw, and the last age is the losing throw. The four throws of the dice are visualized as the legs of a quadruped, dharma, an animal, religious or social justice. Dharma begins on four legs, and three and two, and right now the Dharma is only on one leg. But the fourth age was always from the start entirely different from the first three. Unlike the other ages, it is now, it is real, it is always our age. Historical time starts only when people have children and death enters the world. The first three therefore form one group, Eden, the Golden Age, the way it was in Illo Tempore, and the last item, the Kali Yuga, forms the other group, now, reality. Sigmund Freud argued that myths of the Golden Age are so widespread because they reflect an adult's longing to return to a romanticized image of happy childhood. This accounts for the conservative attitude toward the lost, perfect past when apples tasted sweeter and children treated their parents with respect and I walked 10 miles barefoot into the snow to school every day. 
But the deeper longing that echoes in the myth of the golden age is well captured in Robert Frost's poem entitled Nothing Gold Can Stay. I think I know it by heart. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Then every leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. Beautiful poem. The theologian Pierre Teilhard de Chardin pointed out that myths of the golden age are really myths about the future, about a perfect time that never was but that might someday be. This is the force behind the mythologies of utopia, often fanatical and or socially disruptive myths. But it is also the force behind all those myths of origins, which under the cover of excavating the past, what we once were, where we came from, actually express our dreams of the future, of what we might someday be. Let me conclude with the last level, the origins of the embryo. Time inevitably runs down, but it also starts up again, circling the square, reversing the linear pattern of inevitable degeneration. Instead of remaining linear, as in Greece, time in India becomes both linear, the fourfold uh, dis disintegration, and also cyclical, threefold, a spiral, or a Merbius strip. It declines and is reborn over again as each successive doomsday undergoes its sea change into each successive cosmogony, at the end of which comes doomsday, and so forth and so on. The idea of the cyclicity of time leads to the circle of karma and rebirth, which carries with it from the start the idea of escaping from that very circularity. The assumption is that we are all on the wheel of redeath, transmigration, samsara. To Western thinkers, this might seem a desirable state of affairs. How nice to go around again and again, never to be blotted out altogether, to have more and more of life, different lives all the time. But from the very start in India, the idea that transmigration occurred was immediately followed by two other ideas that it was possible for some people to get free of it, and that it was desirable for some people to get free of it. In the Hindu view, the cycle begins with death, not birth. Texts explaining rebirth always begin when a man dies and goes on to describe various adventures that the soul endures before finally alighting in some womb or other and then progressing to death. Hindu texts imagine the reincarnating and meditating soul meditating on its next life in the womb of the soul's future mother, where it, not yet he or she, not only remains fully conscious, but remembers its previous lives. And being in the womb is extremely uncomfortable in the Hindu view. You're squashed, you know, with your hands like that, and you're mixed in with all these unpleasant, unpleasant bodily fluids. So it's physically nasty to be conscious inside the womb for nine months, but it's also mentally nasty. This is what happens. Then the embryo begins to remember its many previous existences in the wheel of rebirth, and that depresses it. 
and it tosses from side to side thinking I won't ever do that again. As soon as I get out of this womb, I'll do everything I can so that I won't become an embryo again. It thinks in this way as it remembers the hundreds of miseries of birth that it experienced before and the power of fate. Then as time goes by, the embryo turns around, head down, and in the ninth or tenth month it is born. As it comes out, it is hurt by the wind of procreation. It comes out crying because it is pained by the misery in its heart remembering all the mistakes it's made. When it has come out of the womb, it falls into an unbearable swoon, but it regains consciousness when it is touched by the air. Then Vishnu's deluding power of illusion assails him, and when his soul has been deluded by it, he loses his knowledge. As soon as the living creature has lost his knowledge, he becomes a baby. After that, he becomes a young boy, then an adolescent, and then an old man. And then he dies, and then he is born again as a human. Thus, he wanders on the wheel of rebirth like the bucket on the wheel of a well. So chagrin at the memory of previous mistakes and despair at the realization that one will make them all again in this life, too, is what makes the baby cry as it enters the world. Mae West once said that if she had her life to live over again, she would make all the same mistakes, but she would make them sooner. (laughs) The embryo fears that it, too, will make them again sooner or later. And so we recreate ourselves again and again, constantly getting there from here. Thank you. The question is, after all these theories of mythology, what will take us from mythology to reality? Um, Probably evolutionary theory will not say much about gods. Of all the levels, embryology is the one that I think science has most to say about. So we know a lot more about embryology than the ancient Hindus did. When you get to the creation of the human race, which was the second of the three levels, I think, again, um, evolution knows more than the ancient Hindus did and can take us to a certain point. I think Darwin was right about a lot of things. When it comes to the creation of the universe, I don't think that the Big Bang Theory makes a great deal more sense or as an explanatory theory, although it may be truer. It doesn't explain the sorts of things we want to know, which is, for instance, where did the Big Bang come from? It doesn't get past that question. I once, um, there was a great Nobel laureate in astrophysics who lived at the University of Chicago, Chandra Shekhar, a wonderful man. And I knew him socially. He was a Hindu and we, we hung out together. So once I had lunch with him and I was writing a book about scientific and Hindu theories about the universe, and I said, well, you're a Hindu, of course, but you're also an astrophysicist. What do you think was the origin of the universe? And he looked at me, he said, there are no data relevant to the answer to that question. 
And then that was the end of that discussion. <laughs> we just talked about something else for the rest of lunch. So there is, a, in his mind, this man who was both someone who knew a lot about Hindu mythology and knew about science, it was just a stupid question I was asking. It was a question to which there was no answer, so why ask it? So I think that's where the break comes. I think that's something that science is not interested in. Science is interested in questions like the origin of the, of the galaxy, which is interesting enough, and I think they probably know a lot about the origin of the galaxy, but that's not the question of the origin of everything, which is a non-scientific question, so I don't think science will ever get into that act. Different game, they're playing a different game. What, so what, and now what? Okay, let me do them in reverse order. Now what is the easiest? Now what is the question of what we do with our lives. And in a sense, I'm with Chandra Shekhar there. The now what question is in some ways divorced from meditations on the origin of the universe. Um, here I'm more with Teilhard de Chardin, which is the question of the origin, is really the question of the future. Now what means, what are we going to do with the world we have, and how will we live in it? And to me, those are just individual moral and ethical questions. So the now what question is a practical human question of how we live in the 70 or 90 years we have on this planet and how we try to make it a better place. The so what question is a question that an academic is always asked, and sometimes we teach our students to deal with it, which is what is the relevance of these theoretical and sometimes very um, archaic knowledges that we have to anything we care about. So what question is, what does this have to do with life and with me? And I think that um, when we look inside our own selves and our autobiographical reasons for undertaking the studies that we take, whether they be scientific studies or religious studies or whatever, if we acknowledge that there's a reason why we study what we study and write the books we write, then the so what question can be answered, which is this is important to me because, because I believe that studying other people's texts helps us to understand our own texts better, because I believe that it, wars will end if people really listen to people from other ethnicities and don't hate them so much. There's, there's a... There's a an agenda which any individual has which um, drives her or him to, to study something. And therefore the so what question is, the answer to the so what question is, this matters to me. I took it up. I study it because it has something to do with real life and the things that I care about. I don't know exactly what what means in this context. Sort of what is there in the world, what exists, um, and if, if, if that's what it means, then I guess what means everything? What is everything that there could possibly be to know about the past and future and the, uh, the stars and the depth of the sea? And because there's so much, it doesn't matter where you begin. You just learn as much as you can and then you die. So that's my answer to what? Oh, Genesis, ha, ha. 
First of all, there are two versions of creation in Genesis, so that's a little tricky right there. Um, Secondly, even when there's a void, I'm not a scholar of Genesis. Maybe I should even beg off this question. Let me just say what I think, but if I'm wrong, I immediately admit so. There's an assumption that even when there's a void, there's God. And that therefore God is not created out of nothing. That God has a kind of eternal presence which simply manifests itself on one particular occasion by creating something out of a void. Which is a theological way around that question and does not allow you to ask the question, how did God begin from nothing? The answer is he did not begin from nothing. He was always there. That assumption is also in, um, in the Upanishads as well. The assumption that the universe, the nature of the world is made of God. And that at some point, planets appear and the human race or whatever it is. Not, not planets necessarily in the Hindu view. So I think that's, that's another way of getting behind preempting the logical question of something for nothing. Is, is, uh, uh, and also, in the Hindu view, um, karma is also eternal in a way. There's always, the universe is always being recreated out of a universe that had just died. So you get, a, I guess what I'm saying is that's the circular logic. The circular logic, which is what uh, Eliot was talking about in, his saying, in, in a way also in Burnt Norton, that it just appeared that, that there was nothing but there was always something.